to be here for me and my family. And um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to serve you. With you, you can turn to Mark chapter 2. Our passage for this morning will be Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. When I was in seminary, one of my theology professors told us a very interesting story. Um, like me, he's a graduate from the Master's Seminary in Los Angeles, California. And he told, me a, he told us the class's story about um, <clears throat> one day when a very well-known, very famous uh, word faith healer came to do a big conference in Los Angeles. And so he tried to convince some of his friends to go with him to attend this event. And um, his friends were very dubious about him wanting to go. But it's not that he uh, thought that there was something, some merit to this uh, word faith healer. He was convinced that this guy was a false teacher. But he wanted to go because he was curious to find out how is it that this man is able to deceive and convince such masses of people um, of his ability to perform miracles. And he was uh, particularly interested to see uh, if this guy would present any form of the gospel that's credible. So the question that he wondered with is, is it possible for someone to go to this event and actually come to salvation? And um, as I was preparing for my sermon in this passage in Mark chapter 2, I remembered that story about my theology professor that he told us in my very first semester of seminary, actually. Uh, because there's so much in common between his experience and what we'll read in Mark chapter 2. So like... Like uh, my professor, the scribes and the Pharisees in Mark chapter 2 went to evaluate the claims made by a professing healer. And like the scribes, uh, the scribes, like my professor, went with a great deal of skepticism about what it was that they would find. But there's one big difference, right? There's one big difference between my theology professor's experience and the experience of these scribes. The difference is that in the in the instance of my professor, he was right to be skeptical. The man that he went to see is a false teacher, um, and his miracles are fake. They're not true. Uh, the difference then is that in this case, Jesus is not a false teacher, right? Jesus is the word of God. Um, his words are truth, and his miracles are real. So it's interesting that these skeptics, through their persistent skepticism, uh, come dangerously close to committing the very sin of which we'll see they, they accuse Jesus of committing in this passage. And so we're going to see in Mark chapter 2, we're going to see three different groups that come before Jesus. They take turn. And so our outline will just follow the flow of the narrative as these three different groups come before Jesus. Uh, the first of those groups uh, we'll call the spectators. The second group is the seekers. And then the third group is the skeptics. So if you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 2, read with me, uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. When he, that's Jesus, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, being unable to get to him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Let me just quickly pray for us. Father, as we come to your word, as we look at this passage, I pray that we would um, see Jesus with the right perspective. I pray that we will um, see him as Lord and Savior, and that our skepticism of him would uh, not be persistent, Father. We just pray that you would bless our time and that you would bless your word. Amen. So we'll see in our passage three ways that people approach Jesus. These three groups come to Jesus in three different ways, and two of them are wrong ways, and there's only one right way in which we can approach Jesus. Uh, but, for, but before we start with the first group, before we start with the spectators, I want to give you a brief context, a little bit of the setting, if you will. Uh, the context of chapter one is very important for the details of our passage, so I want to give you just some of the highlights. So if you turn back, if you look, Uh, In Mark chapter 1, you'll see that Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and that's followed immediately by Jesus going out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. And then in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, as he comes out, it says that he comes out of the wilderness and he uh, starts to preach the gospel of God. And then we see that his message is centered on the kingdom of God and the repentance that is required for you to enter into that kingdom. And verses 22 and 27 are very important for us because we see that the people marvel. They're amazed at the teaching of Jesus because it's different to any teaching that they used to. Jesus teaches with an authority that the scribes and the Pharisees do not have. And then the rest of the chapter, the rest of chapter 1, sees Jesus going about healing people and casting out demons. And he becomes so popular that by the time we get to verse 33, it says that the whole city is gathered outside of Jesus' house. It gets so bad that it becomes impossible for Jesus to have any time to himself. And so he tries to sneak away early one morning to have some time alone that he can pray. But it's like he just starts praying and then his disciples track him down. They come find him. Why? To tell him that the people are already gathered together waiting for him and he needs to return with him. And so it's at this point that Jesus says, okay, enough is enough. I did not come to heal people, but I came to preach the message of the kingdom. So he says in verse 38, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came to do. So the rest of the chapter then, to the end of the chapter, sees him going from city to city as he preaches the message of the kingdom. And across his tra- during his travels, he comes across a leprous man. And so he shows compassion to this man by healing him of his leprosy, right? And so then Jesus warns the man, to obey the law. The Mosaic law says that if you're healed from leprosy, then you have to go to the temple, there's specific sacrifices you have to offer, and you have to show yourself to the priests so that they can verify that you have been cleansed from your leprosy. 
So Jesus tells the man to go do this. Keep quiet about the fact that you've been healed, but go to the temple, offer the sacrifices, and show yourself to the priests. Uh, what the man does then, what this leprous man does, is the exact opposite to what Jesus tells him. There's no mention in the passage whatsoever that he goes to the temple. But what it does say is that he goes about and he tells everyone what it was that Jesus had done for him. The very thing Jesus said, don't do. The result of this leprous man testimony is that the crowds that start following Jesus are so large that it becomes impossible for Jesus to enter into any city. And so what he has to do is he has to wait in the countryside as people then start coming to him. So every time then that Jesus tries to return to Capernaum, Capernaum is his base of operations during his time in Galilee. Galilee is kind of in the northern part of Israel. Uh, Jerusalem is much further to the south. So Jesus starts his ministry out in, in Galilee in the north. And so every time he comes, tries to come back to Capernaum, um, the, the crowds just seem to be more and more. The first time that he comes back is in our passage in chapter 2 that we're going to look at. The second time we read about in chapter 3 verse 20. There it says that the crowds are so extreme that the attention on Jesus' time is so much that he can't even find time to sit down to have a meal. So I think this is important for us to understand because in the Gospel of Mark, the crowds are a mixed blessing. On the one hand, it's the, it's the crowds that provide the audience for Jesus' teaching ministry. Jesus' desire is to teach the message about the coming kingdom. And so he needs the crowds to teach them. But as he's confronted with these crowds, he sees their need. He has compassion on them, healing them, driving out demons. And then the crowds get so large, it gets out of control to such an extent that the crowds are the very thing that Jesus has to flee away from. So with that context in mind, I think we have enough uh, so that we can hit the ground running as we come to chapter 2. So then let's start with verse 1. In verse 1, we meet the spectators. So verse 1 says, When he had gone back to Capernaum after several, day, several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. So he's, uh, Jesus is away. He's out on his travels for a period of time. It doesn't say how long. But he comes back with his disciples, and you can almost imagine the scene where late one evening they try to sneak into Capernaum into one of the, by one of the back roads to just get home and get a little bit of time to rest. Uh, but news like this travels fast in a small town, right? Um, so it says that the crowds come flocking. And this time, in chapter 1, verse 33, the whole town gathers outside of his house. Uh, this time, they're not content to stay outside, right? This time, the crowd actually barges into the house, and they fill up the house, and there's no room for anyone, only standing room inside the house. So verse 2 says, Many were gathered together, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and Jesus was speaking the word to them. So Mark tries to convey the sense of this pressing of people by using three different descriptions of how big the crowds are. He says, Many are gathered together, and he says, There's no longer any room. Not even by the door. But the crowds aren't out of control yet. And so Jesus makes the most of the situation. He's got people. He wants to preach the message of the kingdom. And so then it says that he preaches the word to them. He speaks the word to them. You see, Jesus is as happy uh, preaching in the countryside of Galilee or the crowded homes of Capernaum. He doesn't need a church building or a synagogue in their day in order to preach the gospel. Uh, but the thing is, it seems that the people who gather there, these spectators who gather there, are there more out of curiosity than any contrition for the sin in their hearts. In Luke's version of this same account, Luke makes it quite clear that by the time the people leave, 
They're no more convinced about the fact that Jesus is God than they were them when they came. And they're no more convinced about their own sinfulness and their need for, for forgiveness than they were them when they'd showed up. So I'll have a little more to say about the spectators when we get to the end of the section in verse 12. But um, Mark is ready to move us along quickly. And so in verse 3, he brings us to the second group that comes before Jesus. So in verses 3 to 5, we meet the seekers. So verse 3 says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Part of uh, what makes this story, I love this story, and part of what makes this story so extremely interesting to me is how there are all these questions that Mark just doesn't answer. It's such a cryptic story fast, you know. Who are these four men? We know almost nothing about them, right? We don't know what their names are. Uh, we don't even know the name of the paralytic, but we don't know if these four men who bring the paralytic man, are they his brothers? Are they his friends? You know, who are they? We don't know. But there are quite a few things that we can know about them as we look at this passage. So for one, we know, for instance, that they care a lot about this paralytic man, right? They care enough to do whatever it takes to bring him to Jesus. We also know that they have a firm belief in Jesus' ability to do something for this paralytic. Otherwise, they wouldn't go through all the effort to bring him there. And then thirdly, we know that they wouldn't give up, right? They wouldn't give up when faced with obstacles. They kept going, whatever the cost, so that they can bring this man to the feet of Jesus. So can you just imagine what the scene must have been like, right? Imagine what it was like in the house of this paralytic man on that morning when they first received the message that Jesus had come back into town. Can you imagine them frantically scurrying about, trying to get ready, get dressed, get the paralytic man on the stretcher, you know, on the pallet, do what they have to so that they can get him to Jesus before the crowds get there? Because we know that people flock wherever Jesus is. So it doesn't take a lot of imagination to, to see these guys bursting out of the door of this house. Two of them in front, one on each corner, two in the back, running down the dusty streets of Capernaum, legs and lungs burning as they desperately try to get to Jesus before the crowd so that they can get their friend to him. But as they get there, their hope slowly fades. Why? Because they see that they are too late. By the time that they get there, the crowds have gathered. So verse 4 says that despite their best efforts, they're unable to get to Jesus because of the crowd. Now, these guys are desperate, right? It's clear from the story that they are desperate to get to Jesus. Desperate men dig holes in strangers' roofs, right? So they wouldn't have just walked up to the first row of people and said, excuse me, sorry, uh, can we get through? No, these guys would have raised their voices. They would have tried to push people out the way. They were trying to do whatever they could to get to Jesus. But despite their best efforts, they can't make it to Jesus. So defeated and deflated, these guys have to turn around and withdraw away from the crowd and move to the back, away from the noise of all the people trying to find out what's going on inside the house where Jesus is so that they can come up with a new plan. And so someone suggests a plan that seems absolutely crazy at first. And as they start trying to come up with other plans and shooting them down as soon as they make them, they slowly come to the realization the crazy plan is the only plan that will work. They're going to have to break through the roof. And so they circle around this large crowd, moving 
to the side of the house where there's a solid wall with no windows. Instead, there are stairs built into the side wall leading to the roof. You see, Palestinian houses in the first century typically had a staircase or a ladder that would go up the side of a single-story house to the solid roof that was on top. And families would gather on the roof. At the end of the day, it's very hot climate, very stuffy, and so at the end of the day, to escape the heat and the stuffy inside of the house, they would get together on the top of the roof and spend some time together as a family, often taking meals together. And so these men get to the side of the house. There's no windows, there's a staircase. Because there's no windows, there's no one else there because they can't hear what's going on inside. And so they take their friend, I assume it's their friend, on their stretcher and they go up these steps to the top of the house. And again, I can just imagine the scene as the first two guys clear over the edge of the roof and they enter into the line of sight of the crowd on the other side of the house. And some kid probably looks up and spots them and points and says, hey, what's going on over there? And so you can just imagine the stir of these people as they start thinking, what are these guys doing on top of the roof? And as they stand around for a while, they put down their burden and it becomes clear what they were doing as they were standing around on the roof. What they were doing is they were looking for the best spot to dig through the roof, right? So they start attacking this roof trying desperately to dig through. Now, up to this point, the people inside the house have no idea, right? They're all inside. They're gathered together. There's no room for anything. They're just you know, squished in there, trying desperately to listen to Jesus. So they don't have a clue what's going on outside with these guys on the roof. But what starts out as this vaguely distracting sound, you know, this kind of scratching, thump, thump, in the beginning, it's a welcome distraction, taking their thoughts off the sweat running down their backs and the sweaty armpits pressing against them from the people that are packed in so tightly. But this welcome distraction, wondering what's that sound, turns into full-blown chaos as dust and twigs and things start falling down from the roof. So first, first century Palestinian houses typically are built with beams that run across the roof and then smaller twigs and branches that go this way and then those things are packed together with branches and mud, packed hard. So as they start digging through, the stuff inside, debris, is starting to fall on the people who were lucky enough to get inside to hear what Jesus is saying. Now, Jesus is a master communicator, right? If we know anything about Jesus, we know that he's a master communicator. So he knows when he's lost the crowd. So as the distraction becomes too much and Jesus' voice starts to trail down, all eyes slowly start turning up, looking at the roof, wondering what on earth is going on. The spectators know that something juicy, some, something that's going to pay off for their curiosity is about to happen. They just don't know what. So they're so packed, right? The disciples are in the front of the house with Jesus. They can't get out because of the crowds. And it's not like anyone who's standing there inside the room is going to try and get out to go see what's going on. They're not about to lose their place. So everyone waits with bated breath to see what's going to happen. One commentator that I read said, if you are going to dig through a roof and lower your friend down through the hole into the house, a fisherman's house is a good house to choose 
because there's about there's sure to be rope and net and things lying around that you can use. You see, uh, they're pretty sure that this house uh, belongs to Peter. If you look at the context, it's pretty sure that this, this is Peter's house that they're digging through. So it doesn't take a lot of imagination if you just think about it to hear. You can almost hear the collective gasp of the people as this determined heel finally kicks through the last layer of dirt and this foot appears in the ceiling. As the foot pulls away, a beam of sunlight shines through this hole in the roof right at the feet of Jesus and they realize this hole is right above him. So frantic fingers are flung through the hole, pulling away more and more of the dirt, making the hole bigger and bigger until it's almost a meter wide and about two meters long. A moment of silence follows as all of a sudden the digging stops. Now I can only imagine what the frown must have been like on the face of Peter's mom as she saw this hole in the roof of her kitchen and realized that she has the dubious honor of owning the first house in Palestine with a sunroof. <laughs> but I am sure that Jesus was smiling. Why? These men made him happy because he's able to see into their hearts and he sees the faith in their hearts burning brightly, a faith that delights God. So verse 5 says, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. You see, it is as Jesus sees their faith that he addresses this paralytic man as son. You know, this is not a condescending kind of, listen, son. Uh, this is the loving address of a heavenly father to his earthly child. So as a result of their faith, Jesus says to the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven you. Some people think, a lot of the commentators that I read, lots of people think that the faith has to be restricted to the four men who brought the paralytic man to Jesus. So they go on about how God is particularly pleased by the faith of an intermediary, a go-between who brings people to Jesus, and so therefore this faith is acceptable to Jesus. Uh, but there's nothing in the passage that restricts the, their, their faith to exclude the paralytic man. So I think we need to read this when it says Jesus sees their faith. It is the five of them, the four men and the paralytic, coming to Jesus, whose faith Jesus sees. What I think is a much more important question is, what type of faith is it that they had? What kind of faith is it that prompts Jesus to say, Son, your sins are forgiven? That, I think, is the important question. And so I think it's helpful to look at their faith on two fronts. On the one side, we need to look at the, con the character of their faith. And on the other hand, we need to look at the content of their faith. So the character is pretty self-evident, right? They have the type of faith that shows itself in action, right? They have the faith that James talks about in the second chapter of his letter. You know, so James says, faith without works is dead. Instead... I will show you my faith by my works, right? That's the type of faith that these men had. That's what they did. They went to great lengths to get to Jesus. They displayed a level of determination that doesn't come forth from a place of uncertainty. These men had unshakable faith in Jesus. So that's the character of their faith. But then more importantly, I think, is what is the content of their faith? What is it that they believed 
Was it merely that Jesus was able and possibly willing to forgive their friend? I don't think so. So if you still have your Bibles open, go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Uh, it says, Now after John had been taken into custody, that's John the Baptist, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So I don't know if you guys know this, but the word gospel, the Greek word for gospel, uh, means good news. The gospel is the good news. It's a message of good news. Uh, so it's perfectly acceptable for us to translate this as Jesus came preaching the good news about God. What is this good news that he preaches? It is that the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom of God is at hand, and that there is a way to enter into this kingdom. And that way is through repentance and belief. The word for believe in chapter 1 is the same word for faith that is used in chapter 2. The one's a verb and the other one's the noun. But it's the same word for the, the faith that Jesus sees in them in, in verse 5. So what they believe is the good news about the kingdom of God. So the Jewish expectation is that the kingdom would be brought in by the long-expected Messiah, and so these men believed the message, the testimony that Jesus gave about himself, that he is the Messiah who is bringing in this kingdom. In Mark chapter 1, verse 38, it says that Jesus um, says he, went, he came to preach, right? I read that earlier. But in the version in Luke, it gives a little more detail. And Luke says he came to preach the message of the kingdom of God in chapter 4 of Luke. Luke adds another detail about the teaching of Jesus that's not mentioned in Mark. During one of Jesus' earlier teaching ministries, as he went about through the towns of Galilee, he came to his hometown and he picked up the scroll of Isaiah. And there he read a portion that clearly identifies himself as the long-expected Messiah. Remember also that these men would have known about John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist is the one who pointed to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the Messiah had come. They believed, sorry, they believed that this teacher was the one, the one who taught with such authority. He was the one who was the Lamb of God. He was the Messiah who had come to, away the, come to take away the sins of the world and to grant people entrance into the kingdom of God. This entrance was given to everyone who repented of their sins and who believed the good news. This paralytic man and his friend, his faith, their faith, and the forgiveness of his sins came as a result of his faith in the person and the message of Jesus Christ that they had known at this point. And it acted like a passport that granted them entrance into citizenship into the kingdom of God. As we come to verse 6, we come to our third group. We come to the skeptics. And it's hard to miss the contrast that exists between the skeptics and the seekers. Verse 6 says, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, like the seekers, the skeptics had come to Jesus with a great deal of determination. Like the, skept like the seekers, the skeptics had come with a very specific goal. The difference between, between the two groups lies in their attitude towards Jesus. 
the paralytic and his four companions, came to lay their burden at the feet of Jesus. These skeptical scribes came to expose this upstart, flavor-of-the-month teacher who came to steal their show. If you read in Luke, we see that these scribes, spoken of here, came from all over the region of Galilee and Judea, even as far as Jerusalem, far in the south. All of them came with one specific purpose. They came to discredit Jesus. They were looking for anything that they could use against him. See, like my theology professor who went to that faith healers gathering, these men came without any belief that Jesus is the real deal. But unlike my professor, their persistent skepticism is completely unmerited. They were there to expose him. And if they failed to do that, they would find some other way that they could get rid of this backwards itinerant preacher. When Jesus spoke the words, your sins are forgiven, these scribes could not believe their luck. They thought that they would have to work hard, that they would have to find something that they could maybe twist just a little bit to make Jesus look like they could discredit him. Now they realize that none of that would be necessary. They wouldn't have to exaggerate the implications of what he said. They wouldn't have to twist his words. They wouldn't have to go looking for some person who Jesus claimed to heal, whose, whose healing wasn't perfect. None of that would be necessary. They had been handed a gift by Jesus. What's that gift? They had just seen a man unilaterally forgive sins. Something that only God is allowed to do. They had just seen with their own eyes in front of a house full of witnesses the worst kind of blasphemy in their minds. The kind of blasphemy that if you committed it in Jerusalem and Israel, you're guilty of the death sentence. You see, these guys understood exactly what it was that Jesus did. Jesus offered this paralytic man divine forgiveness. And their theology is spot on. They are right when they say that God is the only one who is able to grant this kind of forgiveness. Their mistake then lies in the presupposition. Their attitude towards Jesus that brought them there. Their mistake is that they thought Jesus was just another man like them. A man hungry for power. In verse 8. We move on from the three groups and we see the Savior. Jesus addresses their attitude, their presupposition head on. He says in verse 8, in verse 8 it says, Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? When Mark uses the word immediately, his point is that as these men are thinking these things in their heads, Jesus is aware of it. Jesus sees into the hearts of these skeptics every bit as clearly as he saw into the hearts of those five seekers, the, the, the paralytic man and his four companions. I don't know how many times in my life I'd read this passage, but it was only as I was preparing for this sermon that I realized that up to this point in the story, only one person had said anything. 
Jesus is the only one who has spoken. The paralytic and his four companions come to Jesus, and it is not necessary for them to verbalize their request of Jesus. Jesus sees into their hearts, and he knows what it is that they want. These skeptics do not voice, they don't even whisper to each other about it, what it is that they think about this blasphemy. They are thinking it in their hearts, and Jesus knows it. Three miraculous things take place in this story. There's the he miraculous healing of a paralytic man. There is the miraculous forgiveness of sins. But there is also, we should not miss the fact that there's also a miraculous demonstration of the all-knowing omniscience of God. Jesus doesn't need anyone to say anything to him. He is able to look into the hearts of those around him, and he doesn't have to guess. He knows what it is that they are thinking. So in verse 9, Jesus addresses their unspoken outrage by posing a question to them. He says to them, what's easier? To say the words, your sins are forgiven, or to say the words, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. You see, Jesus could claim anything that he wanted to. His point is that talk is cheap. I can claim anything I want to, and you are going to keep doubting me. If I do not say something with obvious, outward, visible proof, I can say anything I want to, and you won't believe anything that I say. So what he does, in a sense, is he raises the stakes on them. In effect, Jesus says to them, if I say to this man, get up, and if he doesn't get up, then it is obvious that I am the fraud that you think I am. He says to them in verse 10, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. So what Jesus does is he puts his reputation and his entire ministry on the line with this claim. If this paralytic man doesn't get up, then Jesus is a fraud, and these skeptical scribes are right to doubt him. But if he does get up and he walks, then it means that Jesus not only has the power to heal this man, but it also means that he has the authority to forgive sins, to for divinely forgive sins. Like I said, the scribes have their theology right. God is the only one who can forgive sins. So the implication is clear. If the man gets up, then Jesus is God. Now, we know how the story ends, right? The man does get up and he does walk. Just as an aside, have you ever thought what it must have been like? Can you imagine what it must have been like for this paralytic man as he gets up, having to walk away from Jesus? This time, the crowd parting before him like the Red Sea as he leaves the house. If I was him, I would be desperate to stay. This man has faith in Jesus. He believes that he's the Messiah. He's just been healed from his faith. Jesus is there teaching. If I was him, I would want to stay. I would want to stay right there at the feet of Jesus, not go anywhere. But we see the difference that saving faith brings in the reaction of this man and the reaction of the leprous man, right? Jesus here gives this man an instruction that must have been extremely hard for him to obey. But his God had just told him to do something, and he was not going to disobey. So this man gets up, and he walks away.
it doesn't come true, then it means that that man is a false prophet and he is not from me and you do not have to fear him. That's Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 13 says, if this man comes and he makes a prediction or he promises to do something and it actually happens, but the message that he speaks draws you away from faithful obedience to me, then that man too is a false prophet and he shall die, is what he says. So what's the standard? What's the test? If we hear about people who claim to be from God, who claim to have a message, a divine message, based on the miracles they can do, two tests. The first test, does what they say come true? Is their miracle valid? And if it is, and that's a big if, if it does come true and it seems valid, the second question is, does the message that they speak line up with scripture, with revealed truth? If either of those things are not true, then we know that man is a false prophet. Okay, back to Mark chapter 2. Can you imagine, right? So here Jesus is. He had just told this man, your sins are forgiven. Then he speaks to the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees haven't opened their mouths. Jesus tells the crowd, everyone else who's there, what it is that these men are thinking. These men are thinking in their hearts that he's just committed blasphemy. So Jesus lays down the gauntlet, right? He says to these guys, it's you or me. One of us is wrong and one of us is right. Can you imagine the atmosphere as Jesus turns away from these Pharisees and now looks at this paralytic man. He's about to speak to him. I can just imagine people trying to see over the shoulder of the people in front of them. You know, with, with eye-popping attention. They're straining to see. Is his toes going to twitch? Is he going to move? Is he going to get up? What's going to happen? This guy's just claimed to be God. Surely God won't use him to heal this man if he's not God, right? So there's all this tension as everyone holds their breath. Focusing on this man. Jesus turns to him. Like I said, we know how the story ends, right? We know the man gets up and he walks. As the paralytic man rises, paralytic man rises from his bed, the spirits of the scribes sink. Instead of catching Jesus in this trap, they thought they had him. Instead of catching them in this trap that he had made himself, they are now forced to admit that this man had just committed a miracle in the presence of so many people. And they were going to have to deal with the testimony of all these people who are now surely going to go out saying that they've just met the Messiah. As we look at the story, it's obvious that these four companions loved this paralytic man. They went to great extents for him, right? They went to great lengths. They refused to quit. They did whatever they have to, even dig a hole through the roof of a stranger and pay whatever price they had to. They would do anything to get this man to Jesus because of their love. But don't miss the fact that the love that they have for this man pales in comparison to the love that Jesus has for this paralytic man. It is easy to say the words, your sins are forgiven. But for those words to have the ring of truth, for them to be true, Jesus had to pay an infinite price. Because of his love for sinners like us and like that paralytic man, Jesus laid aside his glory in heaven. And he became a man taking on the form of a slave, being despised and scorned by his own creation, ultimately dying at their hateful hands. Why? Why? 
all so that he can say to that man, your sins are forgiven you. So in verse 12, Mark circles back to our first group, to the spectators. Verse 12 says, And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. The spectators rejoice. But talk is cheap. It's very possible that the very same people, or at least some of the very same people who are in this crowd, glorifying God because of what they're seeing here, are present at the Passover sometime later in Jerusalem and standing with the rest of the people saying, crucify him. Talk is cheap. So, my question to you is, who are you? With what group do you identify? As you look at these three groups, as you look at the spectators, the skeptics, and the seekers, what are you? Are you a spectator? Are you a skeptic? Or are you a seeker? I doubt that there are many skeptics here. If you're a skeptic, you have very little reason to come to church unless your parents brought you or a husband or a wife brought you. No, my concern, my fear is that there might be some spectators in this room. You see, paying lip service to the greatness of God is not enough. Marveling even at the greatness and the goodness of God that he shows to other people is not enough. It does not bring salvation. Just as Jesus saw into the hearts of the seekers and the skeptics, he also saw into the hearts of the spectators. And in the same way, he sees into your hearts. And he knows what it is that you are thinking. He knows if your faith is genuine or if you just come every Sunday going through the motions. You might have fooled everyone around you, but Jesus is not fooled. If you are merely a spectator, he knows. Unless you come to him with the repentance and the faith of those five seekers, you will not know the forgiveness of your sins and you will not have entrance into the kingdom of heaven. But remember the words of Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you so much for his love. Thank you that he came to earth, that you sent your son, that he loved us enough to live a perfect life, an obedient life that he could not help but demonstrate his love and compassion, healing sick people and saving sinners. We thank you for the coming kingdom. We thank you that, that we might know citizenship in that kingdom and we look forward to the day when Jesus will return. Father, I pray for any in this room, any family and friends that we have who, who are spectators, who think that being intrigued by Jesus, marveling at the things that he did, who think that that is enough, but who have not repented of their sins and believed in him in faith, Father. I pray that you would grant salvation to any who might be here as a spectator this morning. Thank you so much that Jesus died so that we might know life. Amen.